Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. If you've been listening to A Certain Age for any length of time, you know we are super fans of career evolution, of taking big, bold leaps and looking at midlife as a creative accelerant, not an obstacle. I am so delighted to introduce you to today's guest, a woman who shows us we can write new chapters into our life story at any age. Angie Kim moved from Seoul, South Korea to the suburbs of Baltimore during middle school, then on to Stanford University and Harvard Law, where she was an editor of the Harvard Law Review before becoming a trial lawyer at a major law firm. Next came a big juicy jump into fiction writing and publishing her first novel, the bestseller Miracle Creek at age 50. Welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. And I love the topic of this conversation and your podcast in general. So um, this is a huge honor. Thank you. I'm, I'm very, very excited. I um, first discovered you during the pandemic. My, my mom and my sister and my sister-in-law and her mother have a virtual book club. And my sister, Jenny, is a is a enormous fan of, of thrillers and courtroom dramas. And she uh, recommended your book. And I'm going to tell you, it was the first book that we all agreed that we loved. Because <laughs> we had read oh, some... Oh, I love that. I'm not going to name any of the others, <laughs> but we had, you know, there was always like a split decision, but this was universally um, appreciated and enjoyed. And so then I went off to Google you because I wanted to learn more about you. I read all the questions at the end and it made me curious. And when I Googled right. you... I learned about your career pivot and that you wrote this book when, or published it rather when you were 50. And I thought, I need to have Angie on my show. So right. I'm so delighted. <laughs> I'm so delighted you found time. Um, so I guess my first question, and this is a serious question, is there anything you can't do? Because I am <laughs> pretty knocked out by your career, right? You've had so many different strands, right? You went to amazing schools, Harvard Law Review. You practiced uh, law as a trial attorney, and then you made a pivot into uh, fiction writing. But I know that uh, the through line of both your life and your and your novel Miracle Creek is that of a young girl who moved from Korea at a very young age and had to make her way in an unfamiliar world. Um, what was that like? Well, thank you so much. Um, and uh, but before I answer the question about the immigration thread, um, just so you know, I, I didn't go straight from being a trial lawyer to fiction. Um, I actually uh, fiction writing is actually my fifth career, if you can believe it. Tell me, tell me. So, I, <laughs> so, yes, I'm very much a believer in reinventing yourself every once in a while, like very, very, very quickly um, if you don't love what you're doing. And that's my whole mantra that I've been telling my kids also um, is that you really have to love what you're doing on a day to day basis, as well as sort of, you know, when you step back and look at your life, that type of thing. So I have not been shy about just sort of saying, you know what, I'm not loving this, so I'm going to try something else. And so I was a management consultant. I was a dot-com entrepreneur. I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, and then I actually started writing, doing creative writing in my 40s. And then, as you said, I published my first novel, um, the week I turned 50, actually. So, yeah. What an amazing celebration. And I love that you shared that you had all these different experiences, too, and that you 
you ask yourself the question like, am I happy? Is this like lighting me up? And, and, and use that to, you know, propel yourself into new to new experiences. Do you feel like that maybe in some way that that moving from one country to another as a child helped you have that kind of resilience, that ability to say, you know what, I, I can I, I can put myself into new circumstances and, and thrive? Oh, I love that. Um, I, you know, I had never thought about that, actually. I hadn't really connected those two. But now that you say it, that seems totally natural. Because, of course, I saw my parents do that, you know, with their own lives and careers. Um, and I did it myself, of course, with respect to language and, you know, having to form new relationships and friendships and um, basically, you know, sort of remake myself um, in this new environment. And so, of course, that probably did give me that foundation, you know, of sort of saying, all right, well, if I'm not happy where I am and doing what I'm doing, I know that I have the freedom to try something different because I saw that in my parents and I've experienced it myself. And even though it was painful at the time, it was something that I was able to actually go through um, and make it out the other end, you know, stronger and happier. So um, that's a really good psychological insight, Katie. I love that. Oh, well, I, I'm excited, you know, because the reason why it occurred to me as you were sharing your story about uh, about all these sort of other pivots that I didn't even know you had made is that <laughs> one of the themes of this, sh- there are a couple themes of the show. You know, the biggest one is like, look, we're aging out loud. We're tired of being told you've got to pretend that you're not getting older. That's like number one. Like that's the whole right. premise of the show. But the other themes that have emerged after I launched it is that midlife is a time of it's very misrepresented. People in pop culture will tell you that midlife is the end of the of the, the road. It's like all downhill from here. But the women that come on the show really see midlife as an accelerant. You know, they've got more time. They have more confidence. They have more experience. And they're able to like take all that and turn it into something new across different you know things. You have a creative pursuit. Others have launched businesses. Others have um, reinvented their careers, gone back to school, done all sorts of new things. But the other theme that's emerged is that of resilience. Because almost every single woman who's come on my show, I've had women come on talking about um, mental health challenges, who've talked about losing spouses, who've talked about you know really um, profound dislocating traumas that they've gone through. And mm. they've emerged stronger. And that resilience is what is sort of powering their, their next act. So I feel like we've already we've already had so much amazing conversation. What are we going to talk about for the next 27 minutes? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> no, definitely. But I mean, I think that's right. Because, you know, when you're young, you know, when you're like a teenager or in your 20s or whatever, and you think about people being in their 50s, um, or older, you sort of think, oh, you know, that's sort of, you know, they're old, they already know what they're doing, they're already set, and they're sort of like, actually plateauing, or even going downhill, right, as far as sort of life um, evolutions and things like that. But now that I'm here, you know, I really feel like, I mean, I feel the same amount of potential as I did when I was in my 20s. Um, I, you know, I, I really feel like there's so much more yet to come. And I'm so excited to discover these new facets of myself that I didn't even realize were there. And it's funny because when I was younger, I did think that by the time I was like 50 or whatever, I would have it all figured out. And that's not the case at all, which is 
really exciting and you know to feel like you're not set you know no absolutely and it, it is exciting and it's funny like when i was younger i don't think that i felt like i was necessarily going to have it all figured out at 50 because i i learned I had different careers that I that I enjoyed, but I, I wasn't going to stay with. You know, I taught English in Japan, which was an amazing experience for two years. I I worked on Capitol Hill, which I loved, but I knew I didn't want to be a Senate staffer forever, and I didn't want to run for office. So, you know, that career felt like a little bit, bit limited. I went to a PR firm. I went into um, journalism. I tried a whole bunch of different things on for size, and I think I learned a lot from each experience that I took with me that that put me exactly where I am today, but I never felt like I had landed anywhere. And I look at your career, if we were to look back, you know, we're going to say, you know, the you look at the labels, Stanford, Harvard Law, a very, you know, a blue chip law firm, like you, you were, sort of had arrived. So it's interesting that you had something that I think a lot of people would look at and be like, wow, she's made it. Like, that's incredible. But yet you, that you were able to let go of that? Was it hard to to leave behind something that that probably felt, it probably looked very shiny to other people to try something totally new and different? Yeah, but at the same time, very exciting because um, I think everybody I knew uh, in my 20s was in a law firm. And my husband, you know, he was in the same law firm for, for like 20 years. And um, no one I knew was actually happy <laughs> being a lawyer. And so um, in some ways that made it easy for me to sort of say, okay, it's not that I'm going through some weird experience that I'm going to outgrow or whatever. Um, it's just the kind of thing that seems great when you're younger, but really when you arrive there may not be what you thought it was. And I also think that I had a different um, reason for going into the law. Um, so in high school, I went to this boarding school, a performing arts boarding school called um, Inalakin Arts Academy. And I did musical theater and I really wanted to be an actor. And I was told by my um, coaches, you know, but by my teachers that, you know, it wasn't a really good career decision to go into that because being an Asian American at that time, there really aren't any roles. And so it probably wouldn't be a good idea. That must have been so painful um, to hear. Right, right. Um, And I also think that, you know, now that I look back, they were probably being nice to me, like maybe saying, maybe they thought that they were being nicer than saying, hey, we don't think you're all that talented. So maybe don't do that. Um, I I don't think either things are (laughs) not. Right, right. No, but, you know, I I think that's probably what they thought. You know, this was like 30 years ago or whatever. But now that I look back, I I much would have rather them just been honest with me than, you know, saying something that really doesn't resonate from, you know, uh, race um, and diversity types of um, concerns, you know, which I'm really, really concerned with right now. So anyway, but that, but that's just a side note. So the reason that I went into uh, being a trial lawyer is because of the performative aspects. I sort of thought it was sort of the next best thing to being um, I you know, to love your honesty theater, right? that's very cool. that's very funny and cool <laughs> and was um, it was it and, like was it like acting Angie tell us <laughs> yeah it, it sort of was I loved you know and this relates to my novel Miracle Creek in that 
writing a courtroom drama at age 45 or whatever allowed me to go back to that time, you know, from my 20s when I was all excited about being a litigator and going into the courtroom because I did love going into the courtroom. Um, I That was really the only thing about being a lawyer that I loved. And, you know, writing about it 20 years later, it felt a little bit like that, like I was able to go back into the courtroom in my mind and sort of write about it, except that it was so much better because I could completely control what the witnesses said and did in response, which you don't have as a real life lawyer. Yeah, that's like the um, ideal scenario. It's so fun. But um, unfortunately, when I was in my 20s and actually a lawyer, I learned that um, even though I love being in the courtroom, you're not in the courtroom actually for very, you know, for a lot, um, like maybe 5% of my life as a litigator was filled up um, actually, you know, being in the courtroom and objecting and, you know, making arguments and telling stories and things like that, that I wanted to do. And so, you know, so I, I think that's why I left um, because I sort of felt like, okay, the reason I got in, once I experienced it, it wasn't exactly what I thought that it would be. I think there's so many jobs like that. And if you're spending the bulk of the work doing things that, you, that you're not into and only, you know, the 5% slice doing what lights you up, it's, you know, the equation is not uh, tilted in the right direction. So, you know, you were a trial lawyer for five percent of the time, but so we know how you, we know how you learned about the legal chops and and you know how a courtroom works. How did you learn the rest? How did you learn um, to become a fiction writer? I know that you've written for magazines, but how, you know when did you take on creative writing? When did you take on novel writing? Was it something that you had to teach yourself, or did you do classes? What was the process? Yeah, so I did both. Um, so when I was in my 40s and I had been a stay-at-home mom for a while, I sort of thought that I was going to go back to being an entrepreneur once I had my first child. And he had some medical challenges. And then I had the second and he had some medical challenges, totally different. And then I had my third and he had some medical challenges. So I have three boys and they're all fine now. Like they're, they're completely healthy and everything is great now, but all three did have medical issues as babies and they were all different and they were all like sort of medical mystery types of things that necessitated so much research and so much fighting with insurance companies. It just became a full-time job plus you know, like times five or something. And so, um, so I was a stay at home mom for a long time. And then at some point, because of all of these medical issues, I started writing, um, just as a cathartic therapy kind of thing, you know, just to sort of get my feelings out and, be able to try to figure out what it was that I was feeling, which was just so intense. Um, so I started doing that. And once I started, I, I don't think I've ever done any creative writing, like really in my life. And so even though I had been such an avid reader and it just triggered something in me and I realized how much I loved it. And of course I had done writing, you know, in an academic sense, 
I had, you know, done uh, legal writing, I had done academic writing, um, business writing, but that's so different from creative writing. And I just fell in love with it. And so I started taking workshops and I started, um, uh, you know, showing people my writing. And the first piece of writing that I actually got published was about the mommy track. Um, in Slate. And it was sort of like a quasi journalistic, but quasi personal essay type thing about my conflicted feelings about, you know, being a stay at home mom and what that means and how I feel guilty toward my parents that they sacrificed so much to send me to this very expensive law school. And had I squandered all of that, you know, so it was that kind of, you know, the angst that, you know, I think you can probably relate to and that a lot of women could relate to. So I got really good response from it. And it was just so wonderful, not only the writing part, but then the sharing afterwards. And then, you know, really discussing the issues with lots of readers who reached out to me afterward. That was just so wonderful. And it just made me feel like this is fulfilling, not only the day-to-dayness of the writing, but then the afterward, right? The, the sharing and the discussing afterwards um, of readers and feeling like my words actually might be helpful to some other people as they suss out their own feelings about some of these issues. Um, so that's sort of how it started. And then I went to fiction because my husband pointed out that um, writing about our family, especially about our kids' medical issues, might not be fair to them um, in a nonfiction sense, just because they can't really, you know, consent meaningfully because they were so young and it wasn't just my story, it was their story too. And he said, how about fiction? And I was like, fiction? I don't know how to, I don't know how to write fiction. And so I took classes and I started with short stories and that was even more, I, I just loved it so much. And I think a lot of the sort of creativity of uh, when I was a teenager and doing acting, um, that really came through because I really sort of feel like um, the most effective way of writing fiction is by trying to inhabit the character that you're writing from, whose point of view you're writing from, and sort of doing this method writing type thing. So um, that's so I fascinating, just, like the connection between yeah. acting and writing and the idea of like inhabiting somebody else's skin it's I've never heard anyone make that link before and it makes so much sense that if you're able to to put yourself into somebody else's world as an actor that perhaps that that talent is something that you could be using for writing you know Angie we're going to take a very quick break and when we come back I want you to talk to our listeners a little bit about what Miracle Creek's about and also maybe touch upon how the different um, strands of the Miracle Creek story you know map or don't map to the things that happened in your own life We'll be back after a quick break. Summer fun equals sun. Want to make sure the sun looks good on you? Meet Soleil Toujours. More than a sunscreen, Soleil Toujours offers luxurious coral reef safe, non-toxic formulas with all mineral UV protection, which moisturize and nourish your skin. Potent antioxidants, vitamins, and botanicals pamper and protect you. It's skincare for sun. 
I stock my beach bag with their clean, conscious, antioxidant sunscreen mist and their divine Mineral Alley Hydra Lip Masks. Each makes me feel protected and polished during summer and beyond. Make protection from the sun's harmful rays a daily routine, not just a beach day consideration. Want to let the sun shine in? Soleil Toujours has a sun-kissed offer for a certain age listeners. You get 20% off anything with code KD20 at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E-2-0. Keep the beauty you were born with. Head to Soleil Toujours. That's S-O-L-E-I-L-T-O-U-J-O-U-R-S for luxurious all-mineral sun care. Beauties, the sun looks good on you. Okay, Angie, we're back from our break, and I would love it if you could share with our listeners what Miracle Creek is about. Sure. So Miracle Creek, in a nutshell, it's a literary courtroom drama about a Korean immigrant family and a young single mother who's on trial for murdering her eight-year-old son who's on the autism spectrum. Um, do you want me to say more? Yeah, no, I mean, don't give away, don't give away the ending because we want everyone to buy this book. (laughs) I, you know, I love just, I, one of the things I loved about this book, and, and I'm sure that a lot of listeners can relate. There are so many stories that are woven together that different characters are, are kind of taking, um, sort of center stage at different points. So you really get sort of different perspectives and you see the stories through multiple, uh, angles, but it's it's done so seamlessly that you're never confused because every once in a while you read a book and you're like, who was, you know, it's just, it's it's hard. So you, you were able to take all of these different um, strands and really put them together into this sort of very cohesive yet sort of sprawling, um, I don't know how, what, how to describe it, like a moment or or, uh, oh, or, or an you. experience, which I absolutely loved. But, you know, you we, we touched on this at the beginning that you, you, you know, you came from Korea, you had children with um, with uh, health challenges too. So some of that, some of those themes come up in the book. I mean, how much did you draw yeah. on your own life? How much did you let your imagination run? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, obviously, the story itself is completely fictional. So there's really nothing in there that is. Um, from real life in that sense, but the strands and the themes and some of the characters are definitely from, you know, things that I had that I've experienced um, in my own life. So yeah, there are really three main strands that are in the book that came from my own life. One is the immigrant strand. And so there's a um, Korean immigrant family uh, with a mom, a dad, and an only child, um, just like me, uh, Mary, who comes, uh, they, they come over to the U.S. when they're, when she's 11 years old, which is the same age I was when I came over. Um, so the, a lot of the dynamics in that family, the Mary character, the, the daughter who w- longs to go back to Korea and who you know, feels displaced, who's feeling a lot of angst as she's having to deal with bullying in middle school and, and then in high school. Um, and, you know, that kind of stuff is taken directly from my own life. So a lot of those um, ideas that are in there and about how the characters feel like they have been um, stripped of their intelligence and competence because they can no longer speak or understand the language that they are forced to, you know, inhabit every day. 
um, that kind of stuff is stuff that I experienced myself and that I witnessed my parents going through. So that's definitely a strong strand through uh, the novel. And then just like you said, the second one is my experience being the mom of um, kids with health challenges. So the novel, um, Miracle Creek, um, takes place in a, around a medical treatment facility called Miracle Submarine, which is owned by the Korean family. And it's a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. And for those of you who've never heard it, uh, it's a real thing. It's probably in all of your hospitals. It's a pressurized chamber that you enter. It's a medical chamber. And then they sort of increase the the pressure. um, And then you breathe in 100% pure oxygen for about an hour. And so the oxygen is supposed to be healing. So it's supposed to heal, you know, wounds and um, encourage new growth um, and all that kind of stuff. And this is a real thing that I actually did in real life with one of my kids um, who, when he was four years old, he had ulcerative colitis and um, just nothing, you know, none of the traditional treatments were working. And this was a, an experimental treatment at that time. And we were so desperate to try anything to help him um, because he was, yeah, he was like throwing up after every meal and, you know, he wasn't growing and he was saying that it hurt. And, you know, when that happened, I mean, he was four and it was so horrible. And so we decided to go ahead and try it. And, um, and I remember the first time we saw it, he pointed to it and he was like, look, it's, it's the submarine because um, we had just watched the yellow submarine, um, you oh know, my gosh, Beatles um, so for cute. family movie night. And it, yeah, it looked just and like it's so that. Friendly. It it's such like a friendly way of, of looking because otherwise <laughs> you could be like, oh my gosh, what is that thing? You know? Right. Cause it's really claustrophobic when you have to crawl inside and it's like a tube, you know? And, uh, but we did a group one where you go in there with three other families and um, so you're basically in there every day for an hour every day. And, um, and so you get to know these other families really, really well. And the atmosphere inside is so intense, um, you know, because it is claustrophobic and the kids are trying to deal with, you know, not having electronics in there for an hour at a time because, you know, the pure oxygen, it's a fire hazard. So you can't have any, you know, paper or uh, electronics or anything like that inside. So you become really close, or at least in my experience, we became really close with each other. And so I put um, four families in, uh, in my novel, Miracle Creek, into this submarine called Miracle Submarine, and they go through the similar experience. And, um, and, and with a very different to, ending. <laughs> with a very different Yeah, ending. well, yes, because what happens, well, it was a very different beginning. So what happens in the beginning of the novel is someone we think deliberately sets a fire by the oxygen tanks outside, starting an ex- uh, and resulting in an explosion and starting an uncontrollable fire. And several people die. And that's why we have this murder trial. 
So the the novel is a four day murder trial, and the readers sort of become like the juries, right? Like yes. Katie, you've you've read the book, so you can. I, that that was what I was hoping to recreate is this experience of you know really learning what's happening, just like a juror might, and then. Um, and then we also do um, from chapter to chapter go to the different people who are in involved in different ways, seven different people, and they take turns telling us what happened that day, what's happening now, you know, as they're going through the trial and little by little through both their thoughts and actions, as well as what's happening in the courtroom, we get to figure out sort of the who done it of you know who set the fire, but more importantly, the why done it and the how done it element. Yes, and, um, so it, it was really fun to write because I had no really idea. fun to read, and it also taught yeah. me that I would be a terrible detective because the. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I am so wrong. <laughs> I you love know? that. Like it was it was great. I I, to I I enjoyed it so much and and I I thought it was a wonderful uh courtroom drama, wonderful thriller, but I loved all the other aspects that you wove into the story too about um you know, I I have friends who have children who have um you know, profound, mm. uh, you know, they're on the autistic spectrum or that are struggling with health challenges. So I saw that the, the characters felt really real and very fully realized and very human um, and in ways that I've seen people in my own life struggle. And the the um, theme of being, um, you know, a foreigner in a new country and immigration and what makes you American and maybe the judgments that are brought um, how how your language skills uh, or, or, you know, or your lack of them in this new this new language. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. serve against you in, in, in ways. Yeah. And it, you know, it was so resonant because I was reading it at the time that there was so much um, talk about the immigrant experience in our country because of what's been going on politically and the, yeah. the you know, the hate crimes against the AAPI community uh, and all the stress that was going on. My friends who are, you know, Asian American were experiencing. So I just felt like it was such a, a timely piece. Could... When you wrote this book before that period of time, could you have imagined that when the book came out that this would be going on in the news? I mean, in some ways, yes, there's a cynical part of me that says, um, you know, yes, because um, this is the kind of thing that I think we, it goes up and down in waves and we sort of think, okay, maybe, um, hopefully it's, things are getting better, but I think that, you know, especially with everything that was going on, um, you know, in the sort of pre, you know, 2016 elections, which is when I was, you know, really doing a lot of the revisions and things like that, that was really kind of worrisome. And it did make me worry about that. And, you know, and there is a lot of, you know, uh, racial prejudice and bias, as well as some of the sexualized fetishization against, you know, Asian American women and things like that, that are in my novel that I 
you know, sort of baked in that I sort of, you know, suspected was not uh, a, an experience that had gone away fully, if that makes sense. No, t- totally makes sense. I think that the last yeah. four years, you know, laid bare uh, the fact that that we, 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 we thought maybe that, that things were changing and that, that there th- things have changed and there is more open mindedness right. and there is more acceptance. Right. But what some of the uglier undercurrents that we had hoped yes. were gone were laid yeah. bare. And it was clear yeah. that not only were they there, they were thriving in many ways, um, which yeah. was just so, uh, was one of the many upsetting things that happened over the last few years. But absolutely, I think the book does such a good job of touching on all of those uh, in different ways. Um, I had, when I was doing my research and I read an article uh, about you. It, I think you were in it. You were having a conversation about how, while there's some themes that uh, you know hue to your own life, like you know, Korea immigration, you know, um, children with health challenges, you, you're very clear that all of this is fiction and that the characters are not mapped to your own. But you did share at one point that your mom, you know, it was hard for your mom to read it because there is there is that tension between the uh, the mother in the story and the young girl who feels. Uh, abandoned a little bit because her parents were so busy working and that your mom was sad because she felt that perhaps that was based a little bit on your own experience because your parents were very busy making a life for themselves in their new in their new country. Um, I I just was such a I thought such a uh, like a beating heart of the story because I think that as a mother, you're always sacrificing for your kids no matter what your socioeconomic background is, what's happening in your life. Uh, and it's just so painful that to watch those characters struggle where the girl feels sort of abandoned and the mother feels, I don't know, I don't want to use the word misunderstood, but, you know. No, I think that's, but I think that is true. I mean, I think in many ways, um, the novel Miracle Creek is about parenting sacrifices and at at their extremes, yes. you know, because I think for both the immigrant experience as well as the special needs parenting experience, I think that there are similarities in those in that you feel you feel so isolated and you do feel so misunderstood. And it's because of your, you know, amazing intense love for your children that you go through huge changes in your life. Um, But at the same time, that can cause some very human emotions like, you know, momentary, uh, you know, moments of um, regret, maybe, and moments of resentment, which, you know, sounds horrible to say, um, but I think it's something that's real and that's human and very understandable. And now that I'm a mother myself, I totally understood everything that my parents were going through. And it's not like my parents were, you know, um, doing anything uh, fun that they wanted to, you know, just right. sort they of. Weren't do. All, they it's weren't not like clubbing. They were, it's not like they were. Yeah, it's not like they were going out to parties every night. And the reason that I could never see them you know, in my own experience is my parents, um, uh, started a grocery store in a really, really, um, dangerous part of Baltimore. 
And their hours were like 6 a.m. to midnight. So they had to basically, you know, live at the store, not to mention that it's really it was really uh, dangerous for them to step outside the store at all. And so and they didn't want me coming to the store because it was such a dangerous neighborhood. So I basically lived with my aunt and uncle um, who were amazing people. And, you know, and that was an amazing experience. But at the same time, I did really lose touch with my parents, you know, during those years, um, when we were transitioning from, you know, being in Korea, to really getting established in America. And, you know, and I did resent my parents that and I acted out and I was horrible as, you know, I think um, teenagers, teenage girls in middle school, I think can be anyway. And, you know, so it's a very universal experience. Right, exactly. So I so in a way, I think actually writing this book was really helpful, because my parents and I never really discussed it. And writing this in a way was sort of a, lo- a love letter to my mom and and to my pa- and to my dad too but especially my mom and i think she recognized that and i think that's why it was so hard um for her to read but at the same time she's like rereads it all the time now because i think there it's comforting as well to know that i understand you know and, and if she's reading it and looking at it the sacrifices that the mothers made you know hopefully she understands like you know she, hopefully she feels seen you know because oh absolutely right you know, could right. you could you've written this book at a younger age or did you have to get to be a parent and 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 to midlife to be able to have the the sort of perspective that you just shared that your that your parents were were doing their best yeah i think uh, i mean i think i knew intellectually you know even when i was like 15 if you had asked me i would have said well of course my parents sacrificed everything to you know to bring me here and so i so of course i and i probably would have said even though i'm not sure that i would have understood fully um that um you know i didn't blame them or anything like that but i do think that there are things that you can't really or that i myself couldn't understand until i went through the parenting experience myself you know and until i went through this huge period where i did sacrifice everything for my kids and i did feel some of these mixed feelings and realized that this is kind of what being a mother is all about and that the societal sort of the myth of the good mother, the capital G, capital M, is not really real, you know? And um, And it does such a disservice to not talk about it because, you know, when when I went through different phases and I didn't have the same challenges that you did, but I went through different, anyone who's been a mother or a parent has gone through some kind of challenges Absolutely. And w- and w- when you're right. having those days when you're like, I'm not really sure I like anyone I'm living with. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, exactly. Is exactly. Y- you feel terrible, but it's so human. And and we've put this like this this sort of false construct. That, you know, I don't even know what it's based on because I don't know there's a single mother like in humanity who who is this perfect idealized creature that just like loves endlessly and gives, you know, selfishly and, and, and just right. feels and never and Right. And never resents and never, you know, regrets. And, you know, all of those things, it's like you're supposed to enjoy every single moment of your child, you know, and that's just not 
real. Um, but you know, I, I think that it's really taboo to sort of say anything about that. I agree. Um, yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that that has become like a focal point for a lot of the like book clubs and things like that, that I talk to. And whenever I do interviews, people really feel freer, I think, to talk about it. And in my book in, you know, itself, there's a scene, um, a very painful scene where two characters are really being honest with each other about sort of how they feel about being the mom of kids who really require a lot of handholding and what that's done to their lives. And, um, and in some ways, I think it's a really shameful kind of, you know, conversation to have, but also very powerful and liberating for them in many ways that they can share it with each other. Absolutely. And we have to normalize all of those those types of conversations and like even like normalize the idea of like th- what this show does about getting older and acknowledging it and and, and, and aging out loud and, and, and not letting, um, you know, if we don't have mm-hmm. these conversations, um, you're leaving people uh, to feel maybe shame or, um, I don't know, you know, just regret or, or, or yeah. Or fear, and it's you know it's 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 very taboo. People do not even when they come on the show. Like the whole premise is like we're aging out loud. Sometimes people are still like, I don't want to tell you how old I am, <laughs> you know. And you know, no, I mean it's but it's sometimes you you sense there's that like there's that it's that built in you know you have to like you have to check yourself and say oh right, right. like this is like I'm allowed to be I'm, I'm allowed to be 55 or I'm allowed to be 65. Right. I'm allowed to be. Right. I'm allowed to be an imperfect mother because I'm an imperfect human. You know, I'm allowed to be right. all of these things, and we have to sh- we have to show people that, and then it makes it it just makes it easier. Uh, this Absolutely. I think is you know why Variety magazine named you to their inaugural ten storytellers to watch list, <laughs> which I learned when I googled you because I do my homework, which I thought was you know was a ver- <laughs> very cool list to be on. And I'm wondering, you know, you were saying earlier in the show that you wanted to you know be in acting. You were dissuaded perhaps because uh, it was positioned as not a lot of opportunity. But if you were to be looking at um, people telling stories in the AAPI space, or if you were to look at people you'd want to see cast in Miracle Creek, if it were a show or a movie, like who's on your radar? Who should we be watching? Oh, um, oh, that's such a, such a cool um, question. Um, I mean, I just listened to a podcast interview of Sandra O. Oh. Um, so just like two days ago. So she comes you know, sure. foremost, my like completely sent front and center to my mind, um, just because of that experience. And plus, I just think she's completely badass in so many ways. So I would probably have to say her because I just, I, I just completely uh, love her. But um, when I was writing this novel, uh, Miracle Creek, the mother figure of young who is the korean mother who opens and closes the novel so even though there are seven point of view characters she's sort of the main character in my mind the main protagonist because she does close and open the book and she probably has more word count like more chapters devoted to her than any of the other characters um the person the actress that i was thinking of in my mind for her was um Ruthie Ann Miles. I don't know her. She, 
I don't know if you know her. She was a Broadway actress. She was in, um, I think she won a Tony for the King and I, and, um, she was in, um, if you ever watched the Americans, yes. she was in that show. She was the Korean immigrant, uh, character in like season three or something like that. Young he, I think was her name. Um, but she was amazing. So she was the woman that I had in mind for that role. So, <laughs> well, let's put it out into the universe and manifest it. I know you're working at yeah. a new book. What can you tell us about that? Oh, yes. Um, so it's called Happiness Quotient uh, for now. Who knows what it will actually end up being. Miracle Creek was actually called Miracle Submarine for the longest time um, until like five months before publication date when it was abruptly changed. Um, but anyway, um, for Happiness Quotient, it is uh, a story set for now in the pandemic in June of 2020. And it's about a biracial family outside DC and um, a 13 year old boy who is non-speaking, who has something called Angelman syndrome, which is kind of like nonverbal autism. Mm -hmm. And he goes on a walk at the beginning of the book with his father, who's a stay at home dad. And only the boy returns home. And because Ooh. he's non-speaking, he can't talk you know, um, We're left can't to communicate to the family or to the authorities what happened to the dad. So it's really the story of the family trying to struggle through and figure out what happened to the dad and also to protect, you know, the young boy um, and try to find a way of communicating with him and helping him to find his voice. This sounds amazing. When is this book? <laughs> How long are we going to have to wait for this book? When is it coming out? Well, yeah. So I am halfway through um, writing it. So uh, my deadline from my publisher is, I think, September of 2022. So I'm guessing it'll be out in 2023, like late 2023 or early 2024 or something like that. Who knows? Well, I hope you're going to come back on the show when it does, because I intend to be around. And I also want to ask you, Angie, to close this show with me with a speed round. I've been doing it this season and I absolutely love it. It's a lot of fun. Love it. All right. Let's, let's do it. Okay. Book in your beach bag this summer. Ooh, um, book in my, okay. It, this is supposed to be speed round. Oh, yes. No. You gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta, but it can, but bang. Let's, let's, what's okay. The, what's well, I'm going to say the one that I'm looking at right now called the husbands by Chandler Baker. All right. Favorite mystery or thriller ever. Book or movie. Ooh, let's do both. Okay. So book would have to be, uh, mystic river by Dennis Lehane. Nice. And movie? Oh, I don't know. Maybe The Americans. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, no, no. Yeah, Mare of East Town. Oh, my God. Yes, I'm with you on so, that one. So amazing. So right? good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Writing in longhand uh, or typing? Um, Typing. Editing as you go or doing it at the end? Um, Both. Ex Always edit. Always both. edit. Got yep. it. Accepting editor feedback or thinking to yourself, nah. <laughs> I mean, both. I, you, both. You're being totally honest. Both. Yep, I have to do both. Yep. Okay. And coolest language Miracle Creek has been translated into because I did my homework and I know it's 19. 
Ooh, coolest. Um, uh, maybe Croatian because I just received it. Very nice. You get are these all yeah. different books, so they must be all all different book covers. Yeah, they're all different book covers. Uh, they're so fun to to get. They're completely different from each other. So weird. I think the Romanian one like has a really um, cool painting, like you know, like a museum piece in the front of it, and then there are some that are just like all fire. It's so funny to see all the different covers. Yeah, so fun, so fun. Uh, Angie, this has been a total blast. I'm so happy that my sister picked Miracle Creek for our virtual book club because she put you on my radar. I did my Googling. I learned about your creative pivot. And I love the fact that when I reached out to you and said, would you be on the show, that you were a yes. Thank you for being a yes, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. And how can our listeners keep following you and your work? Oh, okay. Um, so you can go to my website, angiekimbooks.com, and you can sign up for my newsletter. Despite the fact that I haven't sent out even one yet, I do plan to um, in the future at some point. Um, and I'm also on social media, Angie Kim Writer on Twitter and Angie Kim A-S-K, um, Angie Kim Ask on Instagram. Um, and I am sort of on a social media hiatus for right now because I'm trying to finish this novel, but I hope to be on soon. Thank you so much, Angie. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. Join me next week when I sit down with foodie and cookbook author Jenny Rosenstrock of the OG cult favorite food blog, Dinner, a Love Story. We will be dishing on summer recipes and being part-time vegetarian. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties. <laughs>